Welcome to the podcast on Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Today I'm talking about a new book by Carolyn Chen titled Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. It's a very interesting and informative analysis of what's going on with tech companies in Silicon Valley. It's not until the conclusion, though, that Chen mentions something that might be taken as speculative, but I think the book provides ample evidence for such a claim. Here's the passage that stopped me dead in my tracks. The problem is that tech companies increasingly operate like the most extreme of religious organizations, cults. They channel the energy of their employees inward and then cut them off from things outside. As I've discussed, tech companies do this by hoarding so much of their employees' time, energy, and passions that they have nothing left for anything else. And they provide for so many of their employees' needs that tech workers can do without the public. In what follows today, I'd like to unpack that statement by considering Chen's argument laid out very carefully throughout the book. But before we get started talking about how tech companies are the new cults, don't forget that OnBecoming is on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. You can comment on today's episode by emailing me at OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. And if you're finding that this podcast speaks to your concerns, please support it at Patreon.com slash OnBecomingPodcast. Perhaps we should start with some attempt at a definition of the term cult. The first thing to say, of course, is there simply isn't anything like a standard definition. For instance, most Christian theologians deem Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons to be cults theologically, though there have been significant efforts recently to include Mormons among standard Christianity. The problem can be stated relatively simply, though the response is going to be much less simple. What are the boundaries of Christianity that exclude these groups? The usual answer is that while there is room in Christianity for a significant degree of differences in beliefs, such groups are seen as just too far beyond the boundaries of what could count as Christianity. Now, of course, that's merely a doctrinal definition. Cults are often defined by their practices that many people outside of them deem weird. Most people don't need a lot of detail to be convinced that Jonestown, run by Jim Jones, was a cult. After all, the whole idea of drinking the Kool-Aid comes from his group, which literally drank Flavor-Aid, laced with cyanide, that ended their lives. However, Jones was first ordained by the Assemblies of God, which is a fully recognized Christian denomination. And then he was ordained again by the Disciples of Christ, again, another fully recognized Christian denomination. It's what happens later that marks Jones as a cult leader. He founded something called the People's Temple in San Francisco. Various people started to report abuse going on at the temple, which is why Jones moved the group to Guyana. Part of what marks him as a cult leader is that people in his group gave him all their money and property. He also claimed to be divine. 
Cults are usually less defined by the exact beliefs of their members than by other aspects, such as how they suck people in and exert sometimes almost total control over their members. Cults are generally marked by heavy demands on their members, unusual rights and practices, and above all, a sense of domination by the leader or leaders. The Oxford English Dictionary provides the following definition of a cult. A relatively small group of people having, and then in parentheses, especially religious, having especially religious beliefs or practices regarding by others as strange or sinister, or as exercising excessive control over members. So is it possible to apply the cult framework to tech firms in Silicon Valley? That definition I just cited mentions religious beliefs, but note that it says especially religious beliefs, which means that cults do not need to be religious per se. However, Chen is definitely arguing in her book that what's going on in Silicon Valley is religious. Her book opens with a question. What happens to us and what happens to religion when people worship work? That's a superb question, though we probably need to ask a more basic question, one that Chen takes for granted. Namely, what does it mean to worship anything? As a verb, worship tends to make us think of people bowing down to a deity. But that's far too literalistic and far too narrow an idea of what constitutes worship. Chen quotes David Foster Wallace, who writes, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there actually is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. To make sense of what Wallace is saying, consider the first definition given by the OED, or the Oxford English Dictionary of Worship, as the condition in a person of deserving, or being held in esteem or repute. That definition is listed as obsolete, but it does establish that worship relates to worth. We worship that which we think is worthy of our worship. And that explains two later definitions. One, reverence or veneration paid to a being or power regarded as supernatural or divine. And two, veneration similar to that paid to a deity. It's that last definition that's key to both Wallace's statement that everyone worships something and Chen's claim that in Silicon Valley, people worship work. In her first chapter, Chen makes two claims that might seem to be in conflict. On the one hand, she writes that on paper, Silicon Valley is one of the least religious places in America. That's in the sense of attending church or defining oneself as religious. A high percentage of people living in Silicon Valley claim to be agnostic or atheist. On the other hand, she goes on to say that, I discovered that Silicon Valley is one of the most religious places in America. She immediately moves to the story of someone named John, who, and now I'm quoting Chen, traded his Christianity for an even more zealous faith in the eventual IPO of his startup. In effect, John moves from putting his faith in Jesus or Christianity to putting his faith in his tech company.
Chen goes so far as to call the tech company community a faith community. That may sound strange to you, but we've already discussed on the podcast how the word faith operates in the New Testament. When Jesus commends someone for having faith, that word always means something like having faith that Jesus is the right guy to follow. It does not mean having faith in a set of doctrines, the way the writers of the New Testament use the term. That's one of the fundamental problems with philosophy of religion. But there are similar misunderstandings among many people. All of that's just the beginning. Various people that Chen spoke to for her research talked of coming to work in Silicon Valley in terms of profound spiritual transformations. She talks to the head of a startup who actually calls himself the head pastor of his startup. A director of human resources at another company says that her work is to, quote, nurture the souls of employees. Many tech companies bring in spiritual advisors for their senior executives, and others fund employees to go on spiritual and religious retreats. Salesforce, a major company, brought in Buddhist monks for their annual conferences in 2017 and 2018. All of that leads Chen to say, work is replacing religion. I'd put that slightly differently. Work has become a religion. We've already talked about what constitutes religion, namely a sense of the sacred that brings people together. A point that I've already made in previous episodes is that things that may not immediately look like religion can be correctly defined in religious terms. In the previous episode, we talked about a football, both in the American sense and the sense that other English speakers use that term, is not merely like, but actually can count as a religion. On another previous episode, we talked about the decline of Christianity in the United States. But it's important to remember that the decline of Christianity isn't the same as the decline of religion. If religion is rightly defined by whatever we most care about, that means people don't usually become less religious unless they simply stop caring about anything at all. Instead, they change what constitutes their religion. That's why Chen can rightly say the following. As we shall see, high-skilled professionals haven't abandoned religion. Instead, they are looking to the workplace to slake their thirst for belonging, identity, purpose, and transcendence. In the previous episode, we've seen that a major feature of religion is belonging. Human beings normally want to belong somewhere with other people. Belonging gives our lives a sense of identity and purpose. Now, you might think, whoa, transcendence, isn't that about God or the supernatural? But transcendence can mean anything that transcends you, which is why having children is already a way in which we transcend ourselves. We die, but our children live on, and thus they transcend us. But if you're part of a startup that hopes to get bought up by Microsoft, that is also an expression of transcendence. 
Those in the startup hope to create something that will transcend them. If you are one of the developers of what is now a major app, then your app transcends you. That's why Chen can write, people are not selling their souls at work. Rather, work is where they find their souls. Her point is that people working in tech derive meaning and purpose from their work in the same way that someone might find meaning and purpose from something more usually considered a religion. If you've been listening to the podcast, you realize that when people talk about religion, they almost always mean organized religion. That is, the kinds of things usually listed as religions. But most people don't think very much about what religion is, and so they don't see that giving up organized religion isn't the same thing as simply giving up religion. To provide context for her work, Chen turns to the earlier work of the sociologist C. Wright Mills. Back in 1951, Mills argued that workers were losing their freedom and individuality to the corporation. Chen agrees and reminds us that back in the 1950s, most Americans found their meaning and identity by way of their families, their churches, bowling clubs, softball leagues, and various other things. Work was seen as the other thing you had to do in other words, the thing you had to do in order to pay for all the stuff that really mattered. Of course, Americans have long had a very strong connection to their work. It's a very typical French thing to say that Americans live to work and French people work to live. I've spent six years living in Belgium, and I have to say that there really is a significant difference between Belgian culture, which is very similar to French culture, and the culture in the United States. While it was and still is the case for many people that work isn't very satisfying, Chen contrasts that with the work of workers in Silicon Valley who found that their work became more rewarding and more fulfilling. By the way, that was just a quote. She cites the statistic that from 1978 to 1998, job satisfaction actually grew for workers who were in the top 20% in terms of income but it declined for everyone else in the lower 80%. While some companies chose the path of offering less to workers, less pay, fewer benefits, others took the path of offering their employees better wages, more freedom in their work, and various other perks. That led to thinking very differently about work and its role in our lives. If companies can convince potential and then actual employees that the company has a mission, a set of values to which it's committed, and a narrative that allows employees to see themselves as part of something bigger than themselves, then employees no longer need the thing we usually call religion. Chen quotes the title of an article that appeared in the Harvard Business Review, titled, Meaning is the New Money. People have various motivations for working. There's the obvious one, of course, but then there are many other motives, such as desiring to change the world or having a sense that we're making a difference. For many college professors, the attraction is the combination of having the opportunity to affect students' lives and development, enjoying working in their discipline, and having somewhat more freedom in terms of their schedule. That's why people smart enough to get a PhD 
and be accepted as contributing members to their guild choose an academic career over something more lucrative. I remember talking to a student of mine who'd taken a year after college to work with a lawyer. Well, he knew that going to law school would likely have brought much greater financial rewards, he found the work to be mind-numbingly boring and became an academic. You don't have to talk to too many people who are highly compensated financially to discover that many of them don't much like what they do. Another student of mine was working in finance and was doing quite well, but then he decided that it just didn't give him any sense of purpose. He became a kindergarten teacher. But what if you could have it all? Meaning, purpose, a sense of transcendence, and a whole lot of money. The solution? Find religion in your work. Most tech workers move to Silicon Valley. Very few are born and raised there. Earlier I mentioned the person named John, and Chen expands on his story to explain how many migrants move from the religion of organized religion to the religion of work. When John had lived in Georgia, he was heavily involved in his church. He became a member in college of a Christian fraternity, yes, a dry frat, and spent his breaks in college doing work for the elderly and needy. Yet now John speaks of that time as a phase in my life that's past. Chen talked to a number of people in tech who formerly were part of the usual things we call religion. Given the religious makeup of the U.S., you might assume that people are leaving Christianity or Judaism behind in order to move to Silicon Valley. But there are also many South Asians who leave Hinduism behind. Those who migrate and continue on their religious traditions are relatively few. Most of them stay quiet about their participation in traditional religions out of fear of ridicule. In order to resist the pull of the company, to give it one's entire being, people who remain part of religious traditions must be uncompromising regarding their religious commitment. Chen says, and here I'm quoting, religious people take pains to differentiate themselves from the true believers in Silicon Valley. For some of them, this means continuing to live a simple lifestyle and maintaining values that often clash with those of the tech cults. Someone named Stan Lee, senior director of product development at one firm, speaks of his struggle to keep from getting sucked into the mindset that absolutely prioritizes work, which makes the employee feel that it is unnatural to put value in anything else. Think about that for a moment. These are highly skilled, highly trained workers. They are clearly not stupid. And yet tech companies want them not merely to give their all to the company, but to value it and what it does above all else. That's exactly what cults do, demand everything from their members. In this case, it turns out to be a struggle between one kind of religion and another kind of religion. Chen doesn't put the struggle in those terms, but it strikes me that in this zero-sum game, the more one nurtures or gives way to one kind of religion, the more one must reject the other religion, or at least see it as less important. Another person, who identifies as a Buddhist, says that she copes with the tech company's demand to be mega-producers and efficient by using the Buddhist idea of detachment. But the result of that detachment in her case was that she literally became detached. She left the tech world and became a writer. 
You could interpret these moves away from religion as actual rejections of religion. But Chen tells a much more nuanced story. Tech workers arrive in Silicon Valley and discover that their new jobs demand almost all of their time. John from Georgia arrives at work at 9 a.m. and works until 11 p.m., relying on copious amounts of energy drinks much more powerful than mere Red Bull. In John's case, he went from changing the world in the name of Christianity to changing the world in the name of his company. And John explains it as follows. You've got to drink the Kool-Aid. In other words, you must put all of your faith in your company. Over 90% of startups fail, so you really do need to be a believer. And those involved in tech usually are believers. A survey of workers at Apple, Facebook, and Google found that 70% of them really did believe that their companies were making the world a better place. Workers at such companies joke about their companies being cults. But it isn't just a joke. As the twin to religious conversions, Chen speaks of work conversions as being, and now I'm quoting, primarily shifts in belonging and loyalty. If shifting your sense of belonging and loyalty isn't a religious conversion, then I don't know what is. You might think, well, religions are much more demanding than tech culture, and they take away their members' freedom to think for themselves. But any such line of reasoning would first need to start out not only with a particular religion, but also a particular form or expression of that religion. For instance, evangelical communities tend to be much more encompassing than Episcopalian communities. The former demands from its adherents much more than the latter. There's a certain amount of room for questioning in evangelicalism, but as I discovered for myself, it's limited, and you often don't find out where the lines are until you cross one of them. But Episcopalians love to say things like, we have more questions than answers something I've heard many times. Probably most of you listening are already conditioned to think that religion is more controlling of people than the workplace. But such assumptions may not be based in reality. In fact, Chen argues for the exact opposite conclusion. She writes, Religions, however, are singular in offering alternative narratives and practices of self and community against Silicon Valley's religion of work. Families can do this too, but religions are particularly powerful in critiquing the culture of work because they do so in ways that are both systematized, embedded in a sophisticated and coherent tradition of religious teachings, texts, practices, and rituals, and also collective, shared with a community that reinforces these alternative values and norms about the meaning of work. If you're wondering what that means in practice, consider what an Episcopal priest, not a fundamentalist pastor, had to say about simply the act of attending church on Sunday. You are doing something countercultural. What he meant by that was, by getting together for prayer and singing and reading scripture, the participants were counting the forces of capitalism that demanded that everything be measured in terms of productivity. For Chen, that is one of the virtues of traditional religions. They provide a different narrative. 
In case you're thinking that Chen is arguing something new, it turns out that's not exactly the case. I don't mean in any way to downplay the significance of her book. It is a truly fine book, one that is the result of a ton of research and extensive interviews with people working in tech. And she makes a strong argument that goes into great detail. But she also makes a short reference to what is now perhaps the most famous article on Silicon Valley, one written by Tom Wolfe, who had a way with words. She briefly quotes from his article, but I think it's worth quoting from it in more detail. Wolf's article was written in the early 80s and concentrated on Robert Noyce, someone who was not and still isn't widely known outside of the tech community. Noyce, however, is the guy who invented the silicon chip in 1959. Wolf pays particular attention to the way Noyce set up his company. Back in the 1960s, people outside of California thought of California in terms of surfing, hippies, and casual attire. California seemed like a fun place to live, but no one really expected Californians to get much done. But as Wolf writes, they couldn't have been more wrong. The new breed of Silicon Valley lived for work. They were disciplined to the point of backspasmed. They worked long hours and kept working on weekends. All of that tells you that the culture of Silicon Valley is nothing new. But here's how Wolf described the change that occurred to those Silicon Valley migrants. Noyce was like a great many bright young men and women from dissenting Protestant families in the Middle West after the Second World War. They were raised as Baptists, Methodists, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, United Brethren, whatever. They had been led through the church door and prodded toward religion, but it had never come alive for them. Sundays made their skulls feel like dried alt husks. So they slowly walked away from church and silently, without so much of a growl of a rebellion, congratulated themselves on their independence of mind and headed into another way of life. Only decades later, in most cases, would they discover how, absentmindedly, inexplicably, they had brought the old ways along for the journey, nonetheless. It was as if, through some extraordinary mistake, they had been sewn into the linings of their coats. What's important about this observation by Wolf is that so often we think we are leaving something behind. Perhaps we never gain enough insight to see that we've not gone so far away as we thought. But since this podcast is titled On Becoming, and since I've already made the claim that the forces that shape us may not be as obvious to us as we think, it's worth pausing to consider that tech workers in Silicon Valley may not fully appreciate just how religious they are. In my book on Nietzsche, I argue that Nietzsche remains deeply religious to the end. It's just that he changes religions, and I argue that he doesn't even completely do that. One major difference, though, between Nietzsche and those who read Nietzsche is Nietzsche himself understood just how close he remained to Christianity. Many of those who read him simply can't, or perhaps don't want, to see that. Having established the religiosity of Silicon Valley, let's consider what Chen calls corporate maternalism. Given what we've seen so far, it shouldn't be hard to see that burnout is the number one problem with tech workers. One of the people interviewed for the book said that during the first three years of his startup, he worked 14-hour days, seven days a week, and he didn't see that as abnormal in any way. 
But that can only be possible if human resources or some other department takes care of a lot of things. One engineer said that they become mom. They take care of us. They're the ones who get us all the food. Highly trained engineers are a valuable resource to companies, so they need to be handled with care. But that means, in effect, that tech companies see themselves as caring for the entire lives of their workers. Chen was surprised that not a single person she interviewed had any misgivings about this. But the reason soon became apparent. Companies and their workers don't see any real division between life and work. In effect, companies make it possible for employees to be on site almost all the time. They offer healthy meals and abundant snacks. Indeed, the quality of food served is a typical way in which employers compete with one another. Employees can work out at work and take yoga classes. There are daycare centers where you can park your children. You can drop off your dry cleaning at work and someone will take care of it. Some companies have barbers and hairstylists on site. They will wash your car. They'll take care of your dentist appointment. For stuff like cleaning your home, some companies offer additional funds to cover that too. But as with all things, of course, there's a catch. For instance, Facebook is currently developing a neighborhood for its employees that includes housing and array of shops. But what that means is that if you work for Facebook, you might never need to leave work. Chen quotes someone who describes it as work becomes home and home becomes work. Companies want to keep employees happy, but not because they deeply care about the employee's well-being. If companies really wanted to have employees who were happy, Chen thinks that they would be at least willing to consider reducing the hours employees work or not expecting quite as much from them. But she found out that when she brought up such ideas, she was simply dismissed. Instead, she noticed that companies were actually continually expecting even more from their workers. The goal, then, was to keep up extreme expectations and try to make everyone think they're happy. It was only in a dark parking lot that one of the employees said to Chen, Everyone's smiling, but no one's happy here. While tech companies usually avoid language such as spirituality or soul, there is an entire business vocabulary to express and talk about such things. The true self, the authentic self, being centered, being alive, liberating potential. Companies talk of values and having a sense of purpose. She points out that when Fred Kaufman was a vice president for LinkedIn, he referred to himself as chief spiritual officer. But just because companies resist any explicitly spiritual language doesn't mean that they aren't concerned about workers' inner selves. Toward that end, they use meditation to help employees find their true selves. A big part of that involves helping workers create their own narratives about how they're contributing to the company. From the viewpoint of management, such a strategy is brilliant. You get people to create narratives about themselves to justify their roles as cogs in a machine. One of the stories Chen kept hearing was the cathedral story. In that story, one worker described himself as simply a stonecutter. The other spoke in glowing tones of helping build a cathedral. Chen says she heard many workers speaking of the work I am called to do. But who exactly is doing the calling? 
No one would dare use the term God, though they might speak of a higher power. But what or who is this higher power? One of the larger companies Chen visited had a labyrinth. You may have seen such a thing, most likely at a Christian cathedral. But this one had a very different God. When you reach the end of the labyrinth, what you discover is the company logo. Chen aptly describes these companies as users of religious technology. To quote her, the users use religion, but they aren't religious. For them, historical religious traditions can be mined for specific practices or rituals, whereas mystics in various traditions saw themselves as doing something very different from work or business. Tech companies see mystical practice as tools to help them build capital. Meditation or mindfulness, a word that sounds less religious even though it indicates the same thing, becomes a way to increase job performance, since it helps workers become more focused and better able to control their emotions. But it also serves to open up creativity, since it involves the right brain, and most tech workers are highly dependent upon the left brain. It's instructive that many people speak of the right brain as the unconscious, or inner wisdom, or sometimes even God. Who teaches employees religious technology? First, there are the people Chen lists as contractors, who can be meditation teachers, executive coaches, and companies that market meditation. There are also many people in human resource departments who teach meditation or mindfulness techniques. While many of these practices arise from the Buddhist tradition, those who teach the techniques need to use different language. In other words, they can't be upfront about the fact that these practices are distinctly Buddhist. Chen identifies a number of ways in which this is done. One is what she calls hidden Buddhism, in which mindfulness is said to come from the wisdom tradition or the ancient tradition. Another is whitened Buddhism, in which meditation is taken to be merely a philosophy or even a science, and thus it's not associated at all with Asian culture. It's true that Buddhism isn't much concerned with doctrines or belief in gods of the supernatural, but of course, if you've been listening to the podcast, you already know that many officially recognized religions don't have these things. The real reason for decoupling Buddhism from its roots is simple enough. Mentioning the Buddha in terms like Dharma makes most non-Buddhists nervous. One of the foremost teachers of Buddhism light is Jack Kornfield, who says, We wanted to offer the powerful practices of insight meditation, as many of our teachers did, as simply as possible, without the complication of rituals, robes, chanting, and the whole religious tradition. It's comical to read a sentence like that. How can you take over parts of a religious tradition and then simply pretend that it isn't religious anymore? But it stops being funny when you realize that many Asians and Asian Americans accuse such teachers of white supremacy or white privilege. That charge is, alas, I think correct. The white privilege here is that thinking that this idea of meditation is just a piece of technology, and so it doesn't really belong to anyone in particular, when the reality is that it comes from a non-white culture. That white people can simply ignore that cultural background is the privilege. Another variation is scientific Buddhism. Sadly, the Dalai Lama is himself highly complicit in this kind of thinking, for he says that Buddhism is, and here I'm quoting, more than a religion, it is a science of the mind. 
The strategy here is to point to developments in neuroscience and then say that mindfulness has been validated by science. Whether this is actually true, of course, is a different matter. There's not that much evidence for such claims. Finally, bottom-line Buddhism is the term Chen uses for those who justify meditation on the basis of ROI, return on investment. But this ends up being comical, too. Meditation has been used traditionally by Buddhist monks to detach themselves from the world. It's designed to make one realize that so many things, like work, simply don't matter. However, used by capitalism, it becomes a technique to increase productivity, which involves becoming more attached rather than less. All of this leads Chen to write, they don't get rid of religious rites or rituals or devotions. They just swap them for the rituals, rites, and devotions of another religion, the religion of work. I think that's an elegant statement of what's really going on. You have to admit that on one level, it's extraordinarily clever. Getting employees to be more productive and increase the bottom line by making work into a religion. But as long as speaking in financial terms, the cost turns out to be tremendous. Most of us are rightly skeptical about people giving up their lives to a religious cult. One reason is because most of us think that there's no there there. In other words, the cult is about something that's phony. The leader is often a charismatic huckster. But if Chen's analysis is correct, there are thousands of people who are doing something eerily similar in the world of work. One of the people she talks to says that while people crave spirituality, they're not finding their needs met by religion. Interestingly enough, that person is named Jim, is part of a religious community in the traditional sense of the term religion, but he thinks that the workplace can become the spiritual center of our lives. Thus Chen isn't being hyperbolic when she says that many tech companies either already are cults or else are moving toward becoming cults. You might think, well, if people can find meaning in their work, more power to them. But what exactly is this meaning? If work gives people a sense of purpose, what is that purpose, and what are its ultimate ends? It's hard to avoid the fact that the meaning they're finding is ultimately about enriching the CEOs and shareholders of these companies. But it gets worse. Grace Shea, an administrator in the Bay Area, points out that neither tech companies nor their workers are very much involved in their communities. You might not think that's important, but all of our communities require involvement of some kind simply to operate. Moreover, the kind of laws designed to protect us are exactly the ones that these companies want to break. Chen quotes from Grace, Their policy is, break the rules! They create business models that are potentially illegal, and so when they get big and bump up against the laws, that's when they get involved in civil society, and they call me. This leads to political fight after political fight, where citizens want to regulate the hell out of them. They don't understand the value of laws. Most people outside of the tech world realize that the bigger the firm, the greater threat it poses to the community at large. But it gets even worse. These same companies that don't have any respect for laws are also working aggressively to avoid paying taxes. They try to contribute as little as possible to the common good and are only concerned about themselves. I could point out that when Facebook and Google don't pay their share of taxes, the rest of us have to take up the slack. 
But the more important point is that this is all being done while such companies are pretending that somehow they're making the world a better place. I'm not going to get into a discussion of the meaning of the term progress, since that's such a complex and unwieldy notion. But if tech companies are our future, then the future seems dim indeed. Remember I mentioned that Facebook plans to build a campus to house its employees? On the face of it, that sounds like a kind gesture towards its employees. But if you put all of these things together, an organization that is totally inwardly focused, unshakably convinced of its own rightness, and moving toward even greater control over its employees, then it's either a cult or something like a new feudal system. If you're keeping abreast at all of what's going on with evangelicalism in the United States, you've probably heard the terms Christian nationalism and theocracy bandied about. The worry is that evangelicals want to turn the U.S. into a Christian state. If that's truly the case, then it's something to worry about. However, so far I'm not convinced that the majority of evangelicals actually want such a thing, even though it's clear that a vocal minority does. In the meantime, most people miss the point Chen is making, that such a theocracy, she calls it the theocracy of work, is already playing out. These tech firms or cults have already achieved significant domination over much of the world. Chen closes her book with two questions. To whom and to what will we choose to belong? What will we choose to worship? Again, worship here simply has to do with whatever we decide, has ultimate worth. In an important sense, simply to see something as worthy is already to worship it. You can add bowing or genuflecting or whatever, but worship doesn't require those things. Chen makes a reference to Alistair McIntyre right before asking those questions. If you're familiar with his work, you already know that McIntyre became famous when he published the book After Virtue, in which he pointed out that there simply isn't anything like objective morality. And if you're familiar with Nietzsche, you realize that he is the first philosopher to make this point. But it's important not to misunderstand what McIntyre is saying. He's not a nihilist or relativist, and for that matter, neither is Nietzsche, something that McIntyre doesn't seem to understand, probably because he's not read Nietzsche closely enough. In any case, both McIntyre and Nietzsche recognize that our moral values simply cannot be grounded in the way that, say, a geometrical proof can. Of course, if you know much about mathematics, you realize that a geometrical proof can only be grounded if we previously assume certain things about mathematics which themselves cannot be grounded. That's a way of saying nothing can be fully grounded. If you think religion can't be grounded but science can, then you've already bought into science's own story about itself, a story which itself cannot be grounded. Alas, I suspect that most tech workers at tech companies have bought this story hook, line, and sinker. They probably have no idea that it's just a story. But let's skip over this broad point for now and stick with the narrow one. McIntyre insists rightly, I think, that our values are going to depend on the stories we tell about who we are and what we care about. Given what I've just said about science, everything ends up depending on the stories we tell about ourselves. There isn't anything that can be understood apart from such stories. 
For McIntyre, this recognition actually resulted in him becoming a Roman Catholic and fully embracing the Thomistic tradition's version of morality. And after writing about all of the religion of work, Chen proclaims, now more than ever, we need the prophetic voices of our religious traditions and communities to help us restore a collective wholeness. But Chen is also cautious just about how much religion can do. She writes, Religions as varied as Buddhism and evangelical Christianity offer personal freedom and personal salvation, but leave the worship of work intact. So simply embracing any particular religion may not be sufficient to avoid being sucked into the religion of work. I think American evangelicalism, for instance, is very much beholden to the religion of work. I'm not intending to sound like a Marxist, but Western culture has drunk very deeply from the wells of capitalism. You may never have read Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations, which is something like the Bible for capitalism, but you would need to have read it to be influenced by capitalism. What very few people know, however, is that Smith wrote another book titled The Theory of Moral Sentiments, in which he argues that capitalism is utterly dependent upon a moral vision to keep it from going off the rails. For capitalism to operate properly, Smith argues that we need three primary virtues, prudence, justice, and benevolence. In Smith's own time, he was accused of being a moralist because he thought that the so-called free market could not be disconnected from moral vision. Smith thought that it could only be free if it was embedded in a deep sense of personal and corporate virtue. I can't tell you what story you should adopt. That's something you'll have to decide for yourself. I can say, though, with utter confidence, you already have a story. It may not be a particularly good story. It may not be one that you've thought about. Maybe you didn't even realize that you have a story. But no one lives without a story, some kind of vision about how you mesh with society in which you are part of and about the kinds of things that really matter. Some of you know that I now live in Scotland, the home of both Alistair McIntyre and Adam Smith. What I've discovered living here is that the story in which Scots find themselves is somewhat different from the one told in the United States. Here the story is more of a communal story. It's far less about the rugged individual who's only socially connected to the degree that it's necessary. Instead, it's a story about the community of Scots. Someone said to me recently that Scotland is something like a less affluent version of Sweden, and I think that's true in some ways. Put another way, I think of Scotland as a place where both Smith's wealth of nations and the theory of moral sentiments reflect how people live. Of the countries that make up the United Kingdom, England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, only in Scotland will you find that the health service will treat you for free simply because you are in Scotland. Of course, if you think I've drunk the Scottish Kool-Aid, that's not quite true. I'm currently waiting to see a specialist about something, and so far, I've had to wait a long time. So a service that treats everyone definitely has downsides. Of course, I've also lived in enough countries at this point in my life, so far a total of four, to realize that no stories are perfect. But I've come to be convinced that some are better than others. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Unbecoming. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson.